People in the middle of Canada have long been attracted to the West Coast. Many head to Vancouver, Victoria, and the Gulf Islands for the ocean, the weather, for the mountains, for the skiing and snowboarding, but many head there for new opportunities. Today, I want to introduce you to two people who moved there and their work blossomed. They trained at the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture, got to Vancouver, and never looked back. They have since become major innovators in what many call the West Coast modern style of architecture. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. It's a podcast created with the help of the graduate students, faculty, and allies of the most experienced and sunniest architecture faculty in Western Canada, where it rains much less than in Vancouver. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Welcome to episode 20 called West Coast. The people who join me today are Darcy Jones, the principal of Darcy Jones Architects, and Sean Pearson, the director of RUF Project. They both join me from Vancouver. Hello, Darcy Jones. Hello. Hello, Sean Pearson. Hello. Now, the architecture that you two do is so inventive, so powerful, so serene, so West Coast, and it has won so many awards. I want to talk with each of you in depth about your practice. Darcy, do you mind if I start with you on this? Oh, that's fine. You grew up in Abbotsford, east of Vancouver. Why did you choose to come to Winnipeg to get uh, what turned out to be two architecture degrees? Originally, I was actually going to go to design school to design cars in, down in California. And that didn't work out probably for cost of tuition and complexities of moving across the border. So a friend at the time said, you should not go to BCIT to take drafting. You should up your game and go to a real architecture school. And it really was, I think, the strongest at the time in the country. So I took a year off after high school and then went right into school there. What kind of architectural sensibility did you draw from University of Manitoba? I didn't know it at the time till I left, but it was just, it was a very rigorous technical place where the little things mattered, which architecture is just a whole collection of little things put in, put together. Like one professor, Harlan Thompson, would drop your letter grade if your line weights and your drawings, you know, didn't read to his liking. You know, you couldn't finish school. I had to stay a couple more weeks because I wasn't finished some of the technical details of my thesis. And those stories happened to everybody. Like it was, it was tough. Why did you choose to return to the Lower Mainland Vancouver area to practice? Between my undergrad and my master's, I actually, my parents had moved to Kamloops in the interim and to grow ginseng, which was booming at the time. There was a chance to design a house for them. And then I did that for a year and then went back to master's. But I just was wanting to try another school. So I tried Dalhousie for a year. And then after being there, I realized I really liked sort of the rigor that I found in Manitoba at the time. And then went back there for just a quick thesis year. And that's when Sean and I overlapped. Oh, interesting. In Canada. Yeah, we were in this crappy building that had humidity dripping from the ceiling and no light, no windows. I think it was a reject to store like hockey gear or something like that. Um, <laughs> and that was <laughs> where thesis really students brutal. got put because we were on the way out. So they gave us the, the pretty tough space, but it was a big space. And Darcy, what did you do to get noticed as a new architect in Vancouver? Uh, I didn't mean to start my own thing so quickly. I knew I wanted to do it as soon as possible. But the house that I did for my parents came out in a magazine the week that I finished school. 
I knew it was coming, but I didn't know it would sync up that nicely. And someone called and asked me to design their house. And so I've never worked for anyone that I started this working for myself probably a week out of finishing school. So it was taking advantage of opportunities that really landed in my lap um, sooner than I thought. What do you think of your work being described by some people, not everyone, as West Coast modern? Well, I mean, more than half of our work is in the Vancouver area and on the Gulf Islands. So we work in this beautiful climate with beautiful settings, often the first building on the site. So I would relate to it. I, I think it, we're a continuation today of Arthur Erickson and Ron Tom, who had broader references to arts and crafts um, down in California to Richard Neutra and Schindler. So that, tra- that north-south tradition up and down the coast, I relate to a lot. So would you say then that the influences were more from California than they were from the eastern part of Canada? That's how the influences a little bit from the east, from some early modernists here came out of Harvard, um, Cornelia Oberlander and uh, Lasserre um, that started the architecture school here. But really there was a north-south tie. There was really well-known architects coming up from Los Angeles here. Um, Neutra was the most well-known I relate more to Schindler because his work's a little more messy and a little more human. Projects vary a bit more. But there is a huge North-South tradition still. You still will find more similarities to how we approach sites and materiality and light, you know, between here and Seattle and Portland than you will between here and Winnipeg and Toronto. When I thought about asking you the question about uh, West Coast Modern, I was kind of really looking deeply at the stuff that you've designed on your site. It's like huge windows, emphasis on the view, wooden building materials, indoors and out, openness, linear design, water features, ever-present vegetation, and an absence of decoration. And I was looking at the features that I thought were making West Coast modern. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think the really poor light quality that we have here, I mean, it'll rain for every day for a month. That's not uncommon. It's dark, even when it's the middle of the day. So there's beautiful scenery. There's very rugged sights. Um, but in the city, that's not, it's really not that different than any other city. You look across at your neighbors, but there's a huge light problem here. So often the whole personality of our projects are how to make these houses have lots of light inside. And then the rest gets flushed out after that. You used in one of your projects, charred wood accents. What are charred wood accents? It's a Japanese technique where you burn wood, and it's quite a deep burn, like it almost becomes a red shu sugibon, it's called. You almost turn it into like a log you find in a campfire after the camping, like the next morning, and it's just naturally resistant to rot and to bugs. And it's quite an ancient technique in Japan, which has a very similar climate to here. Um, and we've done it on two projects, and in both cases, I didn't want to do it. These are client ideas. Like our work often looks quite different project to project, and it's because of the palette. Um, we really try to drag that out of clients, what resonates with them, um, more than I want to have a couple of materials I keep repeating. So and in both cases of the projects we used it on, the clients did it themselves. They just got some tiger torches and did it on in an empty lot on one case, they rented an industrial building in another case, it won't rot. And it has a beauty, it lets the, it actually isn't always black. There's different gradations of it. It can just sort of look like a beautiful piece of driftwood after many years. So people can have a lot of fun with it. And then you can do it on cedar, you can do it on fir. It, it's quite open-ended. And we haven't done it since. And that's not because I got bored with it. It's that no client wanted to do it since. And we 
look to clients for those parts of our projects. You've had so many fascinating projects. I'm not quite sure which to ask you about specifically, but how about if I asked you to walk me around Double Header House? That originally started as a renovation. It was for a young couple with two kids and one of the mums would come and take care of the kids every day. And she was coming in the dark at 6am from out of town in Saanich. And they just got sick of it. And they said, why don't we try to live on this property together and make a duplex or a site or a two buildings on the site, like a carriage house or a laneway house. And we couldn't do it in the zoning. So we decided to make to them what it functions as a duplex, but to the city, what just is one house. So to the city of Victoria, that's just one house with a stair and a door, two staircases connected by a door that could be open. It's locked off most of the time. They're exactly the same at the front and back, and they're exactly the same on the sides, but the house for the family is a little bit bigger than the house for grandma and grandpa. Grandma and grandpa are on the front. They keep an eye on the kids during the day, and then the kids live out in the back. And so they live as independently, and you know, almost like the two houses on a farm you would do on a huge rural property. It's just compressed onto a very small inner city lot, and that's the lowest budget project we've ever done also it's it's quite radical it's just galvanized metal cedar left fairly raw and untreated concrete floors aren't heated it's heated with electric baseboards it's super standard things are exposed um, for cost not so much for effect and they love it and it fits into the neighborhood it's quite radical but also it, it has the same scale as the neighborhood so you know it's becoming quite a loved building on the street even though it's quite alien if you look at it in isolation if you were to point out another project of which you are particularly proud, which one would that be? A project we just took photos of this summer has actually been done for about five years. It's the Ha Ha House, which we did out in Agassiz, out in a floodplain. And it's on a big farm. They, they grew organic sheep as a little side business that started to take off. They have two kids and then the grandma wanted to come and stay and they wanted to all live on one property. So it's a really s- spread out house with quarter of the space is devoted to hallways, but that means they get a sense of distance from each other that makes them stay sane and feel like they have independence from each other. It's raised up five feet above the sheep meadow. That's partly so the sheep won't come and poop on the lawn and walk right into the house because they're very friendly, but it's actually mostly derived by you have to build that high or because when floods come off the Fraser River, which doesn't happen often, but when it does, that's the floodplain level. So it took two or three really kind of banal problems and turned to turn them into a house. And the owner built it himself. So he was the contractor, but he's used to building um, overpasses. He's a civil contractor. It was really a labor of love between us and him. And, you know, now this sheep farm is thriving and all the gra- dirt has turned to grass. And it, this ha-ha wall, which comes from landscape architecture in the 17th century um, in England, is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And it's really like no other project to be in. Like you, you're actually, you're about five or 600 feet from each other at the extremities. Um, and I think that's a Canadian luxury because they have all this space. It's a strategy you could use in the prairies in Alberta or Saskatchewan, but I don't think I've ever been in a building that big and that spread out, but actually done also for a very regular budget. It really came about from just some dumb problems and it has core 10 steel on it because he got it for free from a a project that had too much. So it's just like a big mix of some pretty unexciting details and problems. And it's just a lovely house to be in. It just feels serene and feels five years old or or 80 years old, it's hard to tell. So that that one is really special and of our recent work. The way it 
deals with the land is just was so fun to work on. And just that luxury of space. What's a ha-ha wall? So they would typically do a small little moat, five or six feet, and you often would carve it into the landscape and have a steep rock wall so the sheep couldn't get onto the lawn on big estates, manor houses. But it was typically done as a, as a cut so that you'd look across and see the sheep, but they, it's like a moat. It's kind of a moat to keep sheep off the, the good part of the lawn. Uh, you are the first architect I've ever talked to who talked about sheep and moats in the same sentence. That's oh, quite striking. That's all true. Now, I'd like to turn to Sean Pearson, if I could. So if you'd stand by, Darcy, because I, I want to come back to you because I want sure. to hear you two talk together. But Sean uh, is with his firm, the Vancouver-based firm that he calls RUF Project or Rough Project. Hello, Sean Pearson. Hello. You grew up in Winnipeg and got your architecture training at the University of Manitoba, but you took a bit of a circuitous path to the West Coast and Vancouver by heading to Europe first. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah. So when I finished Manitoba, my mind was set on going somewhere else, partly because I think you grew up in Winnipeg, you always imagine what else is. And so I was either going to New York or to London. And I, again, another Winnipeg story, the flight to London was $50 cheaper. So I was in London. And then about a week later, I had a job. And so I worked at Michael Hopkins there in London and uh, lived there for about five years and then moved to Holland after that. And you ended up working for Nike as their design director for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa? Yeah, that's really? true. I was asked to join Nike, and I thought, hey, this would be kind of wild. What went into the redesign of Nike Town in London, for which you won the World Retail Design Award in 2009? It took a while for me to get my head around being inside of a, a corporation. It was called Brand Design, and we were kind of like a design studio within the company and we were responsible for all the creative work beside product so we had a mixture of people it was brilliant we had photographers graphic designers industrial designers all kind of characters and as a group we would work on projects together and collect people that we needed and then the nike town london project um, was an icon of nike's retail legacy this idea of, of retail as theater it was kind of time I think, to reinvent what that was. It required me to really give a vision as to what this place was going to be. And then have a meeting with, like, you know, all the senior guys at Nike and beg for a massive amount of money and, and convince them. And so, in a way, even though I was within a company, I still was behaving like I do now. It's really trying to convince somebody um, of something that they need and to, to really get them to pay for it. And that's a big part of what we do. We provide brilliant ideas to people for to really help them the do better. It was a fun journey, beautiful design, and the consumers loved it. But more than that, it was uh, generated a lot of revenue. And I think that there was an awareness that there was a, a potential that design could actually drive value. And I think that they knew that anyway. But I think that there was a clear vision uh, as to where that could go. Why did you choose RUF Project for the name of your firm? When I started the company, the idea was that we're going to be doing work across the board. I didn't want us to be traditional. So I wanted to engage in projects in the rural settings in cities, but also the fantasy component, RUF, rural urban fantasy. The fantasy component was really about always pushing ideas, and we continue to do that. So we invest time in concepts that don't have clients. 
that are more about issues, things that are on my mind or on somebody's mind in our office. And we translate that into an actual project. Now, you've designed numerous homes in the Lower Mainland on, out on the Gulf Islands. What are the signature characteristics of a Sean Pearson design? I'm not really somebody who's uh, big on the idea of style. I think and this also comes from our work that we do with Nike and, and uh, or I did before and also some of the brand work that we do. It's very much about a story, a narrative. For me, it's a process. So that design process that you follow, it's linked to understanding the site, the materials you're working with, the conditions of the client. Darcy's story about the sheep and ahas. I don't know if it's a Manitoba thing or if it's just the way, the way we're working, but those little moments, problems, issues, you weave those together and that's what creates the story. It creates the building and it creates the architecture. And I don't think that I want to approach a project with the same toolkit every time. As you kind of make some series of decisions, like a client, for instance, is on the house on Salt Spring, the client was like, no drywall. And I don't want any walls on the outside of the house. So it immediately starts to open up a whole series of beautiful creative thoughts about how to design a house without drywall and without, without walls. But then, you know, they had traditional sense of rooms. So that kind of um, thought process has led to us evolving the way we, we create our projects. To break down though, I think there's certain things that we do a lot. I think we, we have a lot of cantilevers. I think we have a lot of glass. But I think that the combination of that is really how the building relates to the landscape it's in. Um, extending space, uh, creating an inside-outside connection. The cantilever allows that relationship of a void or a space below that doesn't have a termination. And that allows your eye to extend. We do that also on the interior with our floor plans in terms of how spaces and rooms connect where we usually are missing a corner. And that allows that space, the termination of it to become a blur. And that allows a kind of a sense of movement, but also your eye to continue. We find that we use full height glazing always against the corner uh, or often against the corner. And so um, that helps to extend the eye outwards as well. There's these type of games to create, uh, I don't know if they're games or moves, to create a kind of blur between inside, outside, and also spaces within a house. You've designed some pretty fantastic projects. I'm not sure. I think I would have heard if you had actually built the world's tallest Ferris wheel with condominiums built into it. But tell us a little bit about that condominium tower with the exotic German name. Uh, yeah, that was quite fun. Um, that was actually done for Vancouver Design Week. We were asked to open our studio up. So we had this clever idea that we were going to create a, a kind of fake real estate showroom. And we were going to create a project that was hyper fantastic. The funny thing is a couple of guys who were working for me were really good salesmen. And we actually had somebody who was quite ready to spend the money to buy one. We do these projects partly as a comment on the city we live in. And partly as well as a kind of exploration of, of an idea. And so for that one, it was about Vancouver, you know, is a vertical city. It's becoming more so. And this idea of exclusion, the exclusion of view is something that is, you know, stratified by dollars. And the higher you go, the more it costs. So the idea of that project was really about democratizing the view and accessing that kind of precious commodity in Vancouver and allowing everybody to have that view for a certain portion of the week. <laughs> Did you ever build the How I Learned to Love Living in a Hedge project? 
both of those projects got a lot of international attention. We got nominated for awards at the World Architecture Federation. And I, I was standing in front of Wills Alsop defending the, that, that project, the Camel Density Project, this idea of increasing density in Vancouver by, by dissolving. That was because I was new to Vancouver and I kept seeing hedges everywhere. And I thought it was hilarious that these houses were behind these hedges. And so that project was really, again, another little sketch where you say, well, why couldn't you just live in a hedge? And then I did that in like four hours, I think it was, on a Saturday and submitted it to a competition. Submitted it then as part of these awards and then boom, here I am in front of a crowd of crazy global architects talking about this idea of living in a hedge. But I would do it in a second if somebody wanted to do it. This is a rectangular structure, a living space inside, and then there's a hedge fence that surrounds the property and it's built on existing boulevards in Vancouver, right? Correct. Yeah. The idea, you're looking for these spaces, these in-between spaces, right? And boulevards exist in Dunking Out and Cambine and other great streets in the city. And, you know, we thought we would plant the house in a way. And then the inside would be uh, livable with a, a skylight and these kind of beautiful views through the, the hedge. We did a lot of research on how, how you could grow a hedge in the architecture. Again, I'd love to do it. Darcy, you've been listening. What do you think of Sean's work? What do you admire most of, about what Sean does? Talking about that hedge project and the other conceptual ones, I think there's a cheekiness that really is personality becoming design and a reverence that, but also it's just, it's a, profession that can get overly serious and bogged down in the sort of issue of the day and just to inject some fun into it and have fun with it I think isn't done enough and I think a solid sense of humor actually is a defining thing about people that came from Manitoba in our era there's more than just Sean right I think there was a culture of like be the black sheep and try things on and test things that are a bit wild and weird and ruffle feathers and just you know and, and be bold about it and Sean, what do you admire about Darcy's work? A lot. I think Darcy is uh, one of the top architects in the neighborhood. The work that he does, again, very similar to the way that I think he approaches each project as a unique invention. And I think his command of the materials and, and technology that goes into building a modern house is apparent in, in that. And I think that um, he's also evolving. And so that idea of kind of coming to a conclusion and then riding that wave for the rest of your life is not going to happen with Darcy. And I think that is also a very similar goal that we've got, I've got. I don't want to stop inventing and I don't want to stop creating. And I think that a house is something where you can easily fall into the trap because it's so canonized. It's got these elements that are basically always the same. You have bedrooms and bathrooms and kitchens and dining room, but there are ways to adjust and play with that. And I think Darcy does that in a, in a very elegant way. What have I not asked you two that I should have asked? I think where does it go from here is good. We never know. But I think, you know, so many other businesses, they, they have these track, these long range plans. And this is what I'm going to do at year five and year 10. Like I would like to work to larger buildings, but never less custom. Projects that are at a scale that like can, we can really like finesse every single detail of it. So to work 50-50 single-family houses and larger buildings is a goal we're working towards. But then we always come back to that we do houses well and we have a lot of fun and the clients are a lot of fun to work with. So I don't think I'll ever get too far from having houses be a big part of the practice. I'm, I'm with Darcy. I mean, I would love 
for us to tackle larger projects. Uh, we've done one, the Project of South Africa, and that was very fortunate. I think one of the challenges in Canada is access for younger, smaller firms. And I found that when I lived in Europe, there were venues and routes for younger firms with good ideas to break through and have access. One of those is through the competition system. Another one is through a kind of partnering system. So there's a famous Dutch architecture firm called MVRDV. And I got to know Vinnie Mass uh, at one point. And um, I asked him the question, how do you do so many buildings? These guys are so small. Like they, at the time, they had like six people in their office. But they partnered with a larger firm. And so MVRDV did the conceptual work. And the other firm picked up on the trust-based components, which is the you know, con- construction documents and the contract of men. It would be interesting to see what would happen if you threw Darcy with a big office or if you threw us with a big office and see what we could come up with. A lot of it has to do with, with obviously, trust because we're talking about a lot of money and we're talking a lot about programs and type timelines. But I don't think that our creativity is limited. Yeah, I think that we would be capable of this. And I think it's about opportunity. And I think that you can work towards that. I mean, there's a certain amount of, of our business that's based on luck. Part of it is based on being recognized. But I think there's an inherent difficult challenge in the Canadian environment, which is how do you break through and do a larger project when you're small? The break a lot of architects get in Europe, um, Switzerland, Germany, particularly. We've um, talked to people that have done it. They need to be done as blind competitions because the people with the most horsepower to deliver these projects, that's often what they're good at is is the technical, the back end. That's the back half of the project, we call it. Canada would really benefit um, by having a system where the projects were chosen on their design. And then if someone's too young or too small, just the requirements would be that you pair up uh, with a firm that can do the back end. Sean, what do you think of my referring to your style of architecture as West Coast modern? The first project we did was a study in West Coast Mine. I was leaving Nike, coming back to Canada, and got the project to do the house in Salt Spring. One of the conditions the client had, and I took it seriously, was the house had to belong. They had done a house in another location that was what they considered to be the wrong style, and they had problems with it. Um, and so I wanted to root the house in something that was of the place, but for them. But for me, I wanted to study what it was to be Canadian architecture, I guess. And I, I needed to almost do it to get it out of my system or get it into my system. Um, and then use that way of thinking to start to really study uh, internally our own work and how we would proceed. I think it was an extremely valuable experience. It's one of the defined Canadian styles that I think has international recognition. It was a, a series of conditions that made it really good the, the environment here is really forgiving and the budgets that people had and the, the kind of growth of modernism on the North Shore by allotments for people coming home after the war, combined with uh, a large art population that couldn't afford to live here and ended up moving there. Um, and so that kind of created a, a kind of momentum for a passion for modern that was connected to the landscape. And I think that we're lucky because we're in a place where people really appreciate design, or a large part of people here do. And I think that uh, we are a part of that stream. Gentlemen, thank you very much for for taking so much time. Thanks for the invite. Take good care. Bye, Bye, Sean. Bye, Karen.
Sean Pearson is a University of Manitoba architecture graduate and is the director of RUF Project in Vancouver. Darcy Jones is also a University of Manitoba architecture grad, and he's the principal of Darcy Jones Architects of Vancouver. Prairie Design Lab is created with the help of the graduates, faculty, students, and worldwide allies of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. I'm Terry McLeod, your writer, producer, and host. For more information about us, visit our website, prairiedesignlab.com. Special thanks this week to Jason Chan of the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. You can find us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. And you can hear us on the radio on UMFM 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 1130. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Music